Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Now let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're going to pick up at verse 13. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin, you shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house. Then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. David therefore inquired of God for the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him in order to raise him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat food with them. Then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do himself harm? But when David saw the servants were whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. So David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed anointed himself and changed his clothes and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house and when he requested, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. And she gave birth to a son and he named him Solomon. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. All right, so we picked up the last couple of verses that we went over at the end of last time, verses 13 and 14. David gave his confession after Nathan the prophet uh, shared the parable and. his confession was very simple. It wasn't, it wasn't filled with justifications or explanations. It was simply a statement of all the facts, which is, I have sinned against Yahweh. And then Nathan graciously, by God, told him that his sin was taken away and that he would not die, that the consequences would not be immediate death for him. However though, there was lingering discipline 
that the Lord brought to David in order to keep David from committing similar sins in the future. And the reason he's disciplined here, you notice in 14, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Right? Not, because, not at this point is it said because you've committed adultery and murder, but rather uh, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, this is about the name of the Lord. This is about how all sin dishonors Christ, dishonors God, and is not just social. Right? It's not just we hurt one another and we sin against one another, but in all of our sins, the name of God is dragged through the mud because we're, we're to be uh, witnesses, right? We're to be um, living in a way that brings glory to God, not that would bring uh, dishonor upon His name. And so here uh, Nathan is teaching David um, about the, the truth of sin what sin does, and <clears throat> the discipline that would come. And the discipline here is announced. The child also that is born to you shall surely die. And so David's words are short, Nathan's words are short, and Nathan goes to his home. And then the next thing we hear is, then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. Now note that it calls the, the child, it calls Bathsheba Uriah's widow at this point, which is a very interesting way to put it. Later in the passage, in uh, 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba. Right? But here, it, it, we're still thinking back to the sin that David committed. And he... He, uh, and so I think that's just a way to bring the weight of the situation down. It's Uriah's widow, literally Uriah, Uriah's wife. This is not David's wife. This was Uriah's wife by this, this child. Now, notice also in this verse, in the second half of 15, then the Lord, Yahweh, struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David. The child is struck by God, and it leads to the question, the question that I contemplated over this, and I'm, I'm not sure I've fully wrapped my head around it, but how is this not the son being punished for the father's sins? Right? We know from Scripture, Deuteronomy 24.16 says that the son should not be punished for the father's sin, and the father should not be punished for the son's sin. It says it this way, Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. And, and we begin to think about this because clearly this child and this sentence is pronounced upon the child because of the sins of David. The sin of David and how this child was conceived. <clears throat> Calvin on this passage says this, David saw a poor little baby suffering. Now God was showing him as though in a mirror that he himself deserved for the child had not offended in this area. 
Still, he lingered for the space of seven days, and his illness was so distressing that it moved even the most distant people to compassion. When David saw his own flesh and blood there, and since he knew that God had smitten the child for the sin which he had committed, there is no doubt that he was in terrible distress. I mean, think about it. Think about the last time you held a five-day-old baby in your arms. Okay? And that child is sick. And a prophet has told you this child is going to die. Right? Think of the grief. Think of the intensity of that lesson that David is being taught by God. And so Calvin goes on. He says, there is no doubt that he was in terrible distress. Therefore, when he prayed to God for the child, there is no doubt that he was still considering himself and was also praying God to obtain pardon for the crime that he had committed. It is true that we may just pray to God for a child without knowing why he afflicts him. But David was not ignorant because he had heard from the mouth of the prophet that the child would have to die, that God would beat the dog in front of the lion, as they say. must be a French proverb. And that is this, that in this small creature, God would show David what he deserved. Let us carefully note, therefore, that David prayed not only out of parental affection and because of his grief for his child, but because he was still keeping himself and his fall in mind. And so Calvin just brings out the fact that this is that David, in watching the child be afflicted, is being disciplined by the Lord and still contemplating these, his own sins that led to the situation, right? And then, but back to the question, how is this not the son being punished for the father's sins? Calvin answers that question in a way that I don't think is helpful. And I don't often disagree with Calvin, but in this case, I think Calvin goes down a dangerous path that we have to avoid when it comes to situations like that. He says that Calvin says this, God is a law unto himself. And that he does not rush by a blind impulse to the exercise of vengeance so as to confound the innocent with the reprobate, but that he so visits the iniquity of the fathers upon their children as to temper extreme severity with the greatest equity. Now what he's saying there is God can do what he wants to do. Right? And, and there's a sense in which, of course, we, we affirm that. God makes alive and God kills. God brings down, God lifts up. He is sovereign. He numbers our days. He knows, he knows the beginning from the end. But we don't want to set up a situation where God can work against His laws. Right? His laws are a reflection of His character. And so when it says that we are not to punish sons for fathers and fathers for sons, right? we don't want to set up a situation where we can say, well, God, God can work according to His own principles and He can work above or against or or um, in contradiction to how he's revealed himself in the Scripture. Everyone was put to be... So the principle of this is everyone is to be punished simply for his own sins. On that basis, can this child die? Now this is hard to accept, but this is true, right? That child is not... What? 
sinless. That child is not innocent. That child inherits corruption from Adam. And unless God intercedes, that child will remain in that corruption. Now in this case, we have, we have good uh, we have good hope that the child was converted, that the child was regenerate, that the child knew the Lord when David speaks later. And, and yet, it's still guilty. It, babies are not innocent. And mothers hate to, to think about a one or two week old being called not innocent. But about three or four weeks along and they realize, okay, there is a sin nature in this child. This child is corrupt. This child has a will of its own that is set against my pleasure and the will of God. Right? So there's a sense in which, you know, God, God, God was dealing with this child as, as any other child, and the sentence of death came upon it because of the own corru- its own corruption. And yet, still, we have in this passage that the child was afflicted and the child died because of the sins of the father. Um, <clears throat> but God has cause. That's what we want. That's what I want to say. God has cause. Right? We, we are born sinners. We inherit Adam's guilt. So in his eyes, we stand guilty. Even the, the seven-day-old stands guilty before God. In his eyes, it appears we have done nothing. In our eyes, it appears that we have done nothing good or bad. Right? But in his eyes, we've inherited the corruption of Adam. And so, <clears throat> so the end of every man's days is in God's hand. And he is the one who kills and makes alive. The, um, we could also, I mean, there are other ways that we could come to this passage and work through that question of, is this the, the, the son being punished for the sins of the father? And we could go to Deuteronomy and we could say, well, those are just legal precepts for Israel to avoid injustice, right? We, when, when you're in the court of law, that's these are the principles that apply there because man is evil, right? And man wants to bring vengeance, and yet God says, no, you cannot punish the father for the son and the son for the father. And, um, and so uh, we would say that this is just a restriction on human courts, but it does not restrict the right or authority of God to do as he pleases. The other way to wrap our heads around this is to say, well, the punishment was not the child's. The punishment was David's. Right? The child was not punished. The child was, died and was ushered into the presence of God and there to remain forever uncorrupted by this world. But the punishment was David's. David had to contemplate the fact that his sin, sin led to this situation and the conception of this child. And... Um, he was very much being um, being chastened. He was being chastened by his father in heaven as a son of that father. Uh, the child was spared this life. Right? The death of believers is precious in the sight of God, isn't it? 
And it is a sparing of the, the veil of tears that we live in in this life. Right? Death is sparing somebody from something. And the death of children especially is them being brought into a much better situation. And we have every hope that covenant children are brought into the presence of the Lord. Now, how does David respond to so so that's sort of a a, a partial answer I feel like um, I don't know if I can fully answer these questions and some of you may have better thoughts in your head right now but but God has called me to preach tonight <laughs> David responds how and what's awkward about it you know everybody's questioning how David responds they're like and why is it why is it awkward? Well, you know, is it faith or rebellion? Is David rebelling against God because the prophet has announced that the child's going to die and yet that's exactly when David goes into prayer and fasting mode. The prophet has already told him. And so this, you know, is this rebellion or is it faith? Rebellion and not willing to accept the will of the Lord? Is he going to be praying against God's will? And, or is it faith? Is he, is he, does he know God as a father who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness? And so will he go to him again in prayer? The prophet had announced the child's death. Why then these prayers? And um, notice that David fasted, he laid on the ground all night. The duration of this was seven days, right? The child died on the seventh day. And, And I say he prayed based upon what he knew about the gracious character of God. In verse 22 he says, who knows, which is which is a wonderful statement of of God's sovereignty, right? Which is a wonderful statement of our limited knowledge. Who knows? And then he says, the Lord may be gracious to me, right? That the, that the child may live. Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to, to me. Um, again, stealing from Calvin, Calvin says, since our prayers should be founded in faith, how is it that David prayed without the assurance that he would be heard, right? He's praying against what's been prophesied. What is worse, it seems that he wanted to despise God by disdaining the, the threats that he had been given and that he wanted it to turn out otherwise. One could say, therefore, that the prayer of David was out of order and that he had quite forgotten himself because though Nathan had pronounced the death sentence against his child, he, stood, he still wanted God to retract his word and not execute it. However, let us note that the faithful... Here's where Calvin pivots. That the faithful, after hearing God's threats, often have considered that it was intended to stir them up to pray more ardently. And so they have not taken them as closed and absolute, as they say, but have thought that they might still obtain mercy. Right? So, so Calvin is saying that God threatens us. Do you accept that? Of course, all of the law is a threat 
all of the gospel is a threat, believe in my son is a threat, because if you don't, you'll be condemned. Right? There are gospel threatenings in Scripture that we have to come to terms with. And he goes on, I didn't, I didn't write this down, but he goes on to use an example that sometimes when we discipline our children, we don't use physical punishment, we just threaten them. And what it does is changes their behavior. And it's gracious because it's not physical, it's just a threat. And the threat warns us away from, uh, from the sin. So God threatens us so as to not uh, to have to punish us. And so David is contemplating this. Is this a threat from God that's, that's meant to, um, that's meant to uh, cause me to repent of the sins that I've committed? And so it causes him to go into prayer. And yet, um, on the other hand, or not on the other hand, additionally what I would say is, is that God, if you know God's character, if you know God as a father who is compassionate upon his children, then even when the threats come, you would still go to him in prayer and ask that his, his, his will be different than what was announced, right? And I don't think that's, I think that is faith built upon understanding the character of God rather than rebellion against the prophet's announcement of what was coming. And then the servants respond, the response of the servants, how can we tell him he will harm himself? They're really worried about his his psychological well-being, right? His spiritual state. They're worried about where he's at in his mind. And certainly the death of a child is reason for us to be worried about anybody's state of mind. And so they don't want to tell him. And, um, and yet he picks it up from the commotion about him right, reading what's going on in the situation. All the servants are gathering around. They're whispering. He's like, the child's dead, right? They're like, yeah, the child's dead. And he, he picks it up, and then he perplexes all of them by doing what? He, he rose from the ground. He washed. He anointed himself. He changed his clothes. He came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Think of that. Think of that. He rises from the ground. He's covered in dirt. He's been weeping and praying and fasting, and he cleans himself. Doesn't just clean himself, but anoints himself. There is um, some official sort of priestly action going on here. He changes his clothes. He, he cleanses. He's cleansed, and he comes into the house of the Lord and worships. And so with that, the first response of him at the news of the death of the child is to worship God. It's to worship God. It's not to pronounce maledictions against God. It's not to uh, gnash his teeth against the cruelty of the one in heaven. But it's to worship it's to, and worship is to announce his praises. Whereas his actions before are announced to the world as being, uh, bringing, bringing dishonor upon the name of Christ, now, or on the name of God. Now, 
his actions are to bring honor upon the name of God by worshiping him. And then he came to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him and ate. And all of this perplexes those around him. They're like, this is not, this is strange. This is, why was he he's sad when he knew the child was going to die, and then once the child dies, he's like, you know, seems to be somewhat heartless or seems to be um, given to it. And so... Um, He explains it. They ask him, while the child was still alive, I f- and he, he responds, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Right? For him to fast at this point would, would have... For him to fast and weep and pray to God that this child would return after the prophet had announced would now at this point, after the death of the child, been an example of him shunning the Lord's will and being in a state of mind that perhaps was, was um, less than right before God. And so this is a godly response, but it, it's, it's extraordinary. And the grief of Christians is pretty extraordinary in my mind. The grief of Christians. We, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Right? So we can, we, can, we can be undone with grief and at the same time be joyful at the providence and the good grace of God in the salvation of the one who died. And so it's a, it's a weird, bittersweetness. Funerals are bittersweet of those who know and love the Lord. There's no sweetness at all to the death of somebody who doesn't know the Lord, though. It's only those who know the Lord where there's that sweetness that they have gone on to something uh, that they've longed for their entire life to be in the presence of God without sin. So David arose from the ground, he washed, he anointed, he is back from his prodigal ways, he has left behind murderous hatred, and he's turned to worship. This is an indication of, of David's repentance, right? Repentance is tangible. Repentance is not just feelings. Repentance is not just em- expressions of where you think your inner being is. Repentance is very tangible. David went from committing adultery to worshiping God in the temple. And that is um, proof of repentance, and, or part of a proof of repentance. And then there's that statement that's so encouraging in verse 23. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This is God's pro- covenant promise to be a God to our children. Right? This is a good and scriptural principle. Believers have good and scriptural hope that God will save their infants who die in infancy. Right? Unbelievers do not have a similar well-founded hope. Right? It's, it's amazing to me on this question of the children of believers and the children of unbelievers how many 
Reformed pastors are willing to say that all children, all infants who die, are inevitably saved. Which goes beyond Scripture's testimony. Right? That all infants are saved. Um, When all is said and done, the most scriptural view is that taught in Romans 9. Right? He will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Um, And the Westminster Confession of Faith says elect infants dying in infancy will be saved. Well, that's that's, um, as clear as you can put it. Elect infants. The elect will be saved is all they're saying. Right? For the elect infants dying in infancy will be saved. But beyond just that, that the theoretical level of election, right? elect infants, believers have hope based upon scriptures just like this one, verse 23, that we have good and scriptural hope that God draws our children dying in infancy to himself before they have professed faith, before there's been any fruit, before that we can tell whether they've done good or bad, we have good and scriptural support for their being drawn into his presence. And that gives us great comfort, right? It gives us great comfort. It should give you great comfort. Um, God remembers and knows your miscarriages as women, Right? God remembers and knows and knows the children who die very young and draws them into his presence. We have that good hope. And so God is a covenant-keeping, gracious Father who gives good gifts to his children. And one of those good gifts is having a mind for our children and our children's children. And so we praise God for that. Finally, in this passage, we, we stopped at verse 25 and verse 24. David comforted, now notice it says, his wife Bathsheba. And went into her and lay with her. And, she, you know, we don't, it, it seems like this is like uh, on the eighth day after the child has died, which in my mind would seem a little bit callous on the part of David. But we don't know what the time period is here and when he went and comforted his wife and when. They, when he lay with her. But she gave birth to a son. Had to be some time later. And she gave uh, and named him Solomon. Now think about that. Now the Lord loved him, it says. The Lord loved him. And sent word through Nathan the prophet. And he named him Jedidiah. Beloved of the Lord is what that means. For the Lord's sake. Wonderful comfort for David, isn't it? It's wonderful comfort for David because God now sends through the prophet Jedediah, right? God doesn't come to David announcing, you're the man. David has repented. God has been gracious to him. God has, will continue to discipline him for this sin, to keep him from further sin. And yet, now he has a child that's beloved of the Lord. What a wonderful confirmation of God's kindness to David here. Um, The Lord loved him. Jedediah, beloved of the Lord. That's Nathan's message. So some applications from this. 
again, remember, sins may be forgiven, yet require for our good God's ongoing discipline. That is something we have to come to accept from the hand of our Father. And that's Him being a good Father. right? That's not Him being cruel and not forgetting our sins. That's Him being a good Father to keep us from further sins of the same kind. Will you accept that that discipline is to keep you from further and greater sins? Second, God's discipline can seem harsh. It is unpleasant, is the way Scripture puts it. But it's meant to be His love for us. right? It is Him treating us as sons, not as illegitimate children. Illegitimate children, those who are not in covenant with Him, illegitimate children do not get His attention. At least, they do not get His benevolent attention. Right? Yes, there is common grace and there is rain that falls on the just and the unjust alike, but they don't know God as a Father who saves them from their sins. Right? So they're... But... Um, <clears throat> But that discipline is proof of God's love for you. Three, um, prayer. Avail yourself of God's fatherly kindness. That's what prayer is. It's availing yourself of God's kindness to you. Right? Tap into that. Why would we not be constantly praying? The amazing thing is that we get bent out of shape when Paul the apostle tells us to pray without ceasing, and yet when we think about what prayer is, it should be that not praying would be inconceivable. And not availing ourselves of God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. He who casts the stars into the sky, he who knows the beginning and the end, he who is. Fourth, you, your worship will be infrequent when you are caught up in sin. Your worship begins to be infrequent, right? When you're caught up in sin. You can tell when somebody has a bad conscience or when somebody needs to be disciplined in the church because their attendance at worship begins to fall off. It's hard to bring a bad conscience into the, into the sanctuary. Right? And so... Your worship is, becomes infrequent. But, but t- so taking a guilty conscience into the sanctuary into, or into a pulpit, taking a guilty conscience into your preaching, taking a guilty conscience into your leading of worship, whatever it may be, is unbearable. Right? And what David's picture here tells us is repent and return. Repent, then return. Repent, then lift up your head and worship the Lord. And you have to have the faith to believe that He forgives sins. That He forgives specific sins that you've committed. You have to have the faith that He forgives sins. You have to have the faith that David had here. Fifth, the good... um, the. Think of the good that comes out of this terrible sin by David, right? 
the, the, the good that comes from the bad continually happens in Scripture. Good comes out of bad. God uses sin. God uses sin to bring about His means in this world. That is not a reason to sin, but it's a reason to sit back and think about the wonderful power of God. Right? God, God is always, as, as somebody put it, uh, cleverly disguising victory as defeat. Right? Cleverly disguising victory as defeat. Jesus is crucified, right? And you think, oh, that's the end of everything. And yet, that's the beginning of everything, right? And so, um, think of the good that, that God brings from the bad here. Solomon, King Solomon is born. Now, one of the things we learn about Solomon is the sins of the father are visited upon the son. Right? If we think David had a problem with wives, Solomon tenfold. Um, six, there is life after this life. Right? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. That's a statement of life after this life. Very simply put, don't be so focused on this life that you lose sight of the fact that the life to come will be real life. And this is just a really terrible prelude to a long time of eternal rest. Um, the other thing that occurred to me as an application of this is, remember Michael? Michael, David's wife, what was her curse? Barrenness. She could not have child. Unable to bear children because of her sin. And yet Bathsheba here is comforted with a child. Right? So it casts in relief the intensity of the sin that Michael committed by becoming barren and unable to have the joy of a child. And what she did was mock worship. She mocked a worshiper of God. She mocked the king, but she mocked his worship and thought that he was making a spectacle of himself. And God did not take kindly to that, and her punishment was barrenness. Right? And yet, here's Bathsheba, who is comforted with a child this point. And David, for that matter, is comforted as his wife Bathsheba gives birth to this child, and the child is named by God Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord. It's wonderful grace in a terrible situation for which David will eternally give thanks to the Lord for his graciousness. That's what I have. Any other thoughts on this passage that occur to you that I've somehow missed? Any other answers to that question of, is this the son being punished for the sins of the father? It's something that I need to think through still more. But in contemplating those things, you don't want to, you don't want to corrupt the nature of God in your answer. Right? Yeah, Elizabeth.
Yeah, Hezekiah being the preeminent example of that, yeah. right? And they never they just you know prayed for the suffering of one child. Yeah, that's a that's a helpful point. So easy to um I mean, that's a terrible thing. What Hezekiah does is, you know, God says that the punishment is going to fall on your sons, and he's like, so so what? It'll be good for me. It'll go well for me. And that is one of the most common reactions of our hearts. Right? If we admit it truly, we just want peace for ourselves. We just want 15 minutes of silence in our homes. Right? But um, we're talking about the, the people of God. We're talking about the kingdom. We're talking about Israel as a nation. And, and the fate of his children, Hezekiah's children, was being eunuchs in the courts of, of their enemies. Ah, well, so what? It'll be good for me. I mean, and uh, Hezekiah also has his life extended by the mercy of God too, right? Oh, man. Yeah. Anything else? Any thoughts? Well, don't forget this passage. This, this, is, um, this is one of those passages that is so instructive. I mean, we could, we could, I could have done more and further sermons on this, but this is very instructive to us, particularly being in an age of, of easy adultery. Right, easy adultery, access to pornography is a sin that we have to repent of and learn from David here. The consequences of pursuing adultery in that, those ways will, will be terrible. Okay. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for... We thank you for the work of the prophet Nathan in the life of David. We thank you that he did not cower before the king, but that he told him that he was the man, and he did not withhold forgiveness when God told him that David would be forgiven and was forgiven. Father, thank you that, that we see in David a picture of a repenter. We see in David... The, the glory of Psalm 51 that he composed after contemplating the actions he took with Bathsheba. And so we, we pray along with him that you would create in us clean hearts, Father, that we would not grieve your spirit, but that we would uh, pursue you and pursue our repentance, pursue your graciousness and your kindness toward us. And Father, we pray that we would never grow weary of your discipline, knowing that it is the discipline of a father toward a son. We pray that we would remember that your discipline is, is what yields peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives and makes us fit vessels for a life in your presence. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.